Hello and welcome to Miss D's Lunacy. This is part two of the interview that I did with Billy David. It's so interesting, but I have to add something very important about his true patriotism. What he did was that he enlisted in the Marines during the Vietnam War and went and fought and uh, got shot. And he came home and then he re-enlisted in the Marines and went back to fight with his comrades and got exposed to Agent Orange, which almost killed him. And he had to come home and he was very, very, very sick. And I just have to say that he speaks so highly of the Marines and all of the people who gave their life and time to the war, which is why he's so interested in the war movies back in the 30s. That's why he knows so much about it. So here we go, part two, please enjoy. In 93, he sold one of his Oscars for, uh, I think, $65,000. To pay for his marriage. His wife's uh, illness. Then there was a further controversy because some people said, no, it's so he could take his wife on a cruise. And my attitude is, as a veteran, I could care less how he spent the money. I agree. And not because of that. Before that, you're not supposed to sell your Oscar. Well, so what? He did. And uh, he already had another Oscar, so they, they should have given him two. But anyway, that movie. And then he did, finally he did. He did another movie. Yeah. Howard Russell, you mean, made that. Yeah, no, Russell. He, Russell only appeared like in one movie after that. But Weiler did Roman Holiday. Oh, that so he went from war to comedy, 1953. Audrey Hepburn's first movie, and she won the Academy Award. Wow. Filmed in Rome. First movie filmed in Rome. I remember. And then he did a couple other good movies. And then he did 1959. Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur. Exactly, Misty. And it ranks in the top 10 epic movies of all time. Totally. It's, they spent uh, uh, $2 million just on the chariot uh, uh, contest. By the way, Stephen Boyd and Charlton Heston did 90% of their own driving. They were their own stuntmen. And Boyd actually wore a suit of armor underneath his Roman outfit to actually climb back on the thing. Could have been killed. Yeah. Discredit. Charlton Heston happened to be a champion horseman, but... Uh, uh, and he won that one, 11 Academy Awards. I love that movie. And that, me too. And that's his, uh, that was his third Oscar. And that only, it was tied by the movie Titanic in the late 90s. <laughs> I don't want to dispute it, but Titanic has a lot of computer work. Ben Hur, there's no computers. That's true. That's real guys out there in Chariot. Uh, and it's, uh, there's a beautiful story in it about Christ. Uh, people forget this. The book was written by a Civil War general after the war, Lou Wallace. He focuses much more on the conversion of Ben-Hur, who's a, a aristocratic Jew in Judea, to Christianity. This one focuses more on the rivalry friendship of the Roman thing. Very interesting here. I actually mentioned this earlier about the blacklist. We talked about the blacklist. <coughs> I'll backstep a bit. <coughs> in Ben-Hur, the opening thing, a Roman comes back, Stephen Boy, now he's been promoted. He's like pro-council. It's a big job. He's in charge of all of Judea. He's going to see his old boyhood friend, Judah Ben-Hur, who's an aristocrat. 
They played sports together. They drank together. They chased girls together when they were young. But now Boyd says, you're now part of the empire. Follow us. Be with us. Not a metaphor for Nazi Germany. And you can help us. There's some rebels. You can help us. And the character Ben-Hur says, you mean you want me to be an informer? That's a direct link to the blacklist. I'll explain. Roman Holiday, going back six years. The screenwriter for that movie was a man named Dalton Trumbo, who'd been one of the Hollywood Ten, who'd gone to prison. And he wrote under pseudonym. Yes. When he won the Academy Award, that director, screenwriter, he couldn't go. So uh, uh, a fellow named uh, McLean, Ian McLean, who'd done a little writing on the thing, accepted it. For him. And they said uh, 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 he accepted it in his place. Wow. He took it as if he's the writer. For years, Trumbo's name is not on the screenplay. That's correct. His family fought it. And it's in the book and film Trumbo. I did a book talk on Trumbo. I saw the movie. And, and they demanded, and now it's on the credits. Good, but they, he couldn't at the time. Couldn't that. Weiler also did a movie called Friendly Persuasion. Very fine book about Quakers, Southern Indiana, during the Civil War. And Weiler was wrestling, and he didn't do this very successfully either, wrestling with violence and peace. Should you fight, should you not fight? The father didn't want to fight Gary Cooper, Anthony Perkins in his first movie role, doesn't see in T and Sympathy on Broadway, was very good as a son. He, in the end, fights to protect his family and kills a rebel. It blows his mind because he's not really a soldier, but nonetheless, there's a point. When do you take up arms? When does your religious non-combative uh, uh, philosophy end up being all shot or imprisoned. I mean, that's the dilemma. In this film, Wilson, Michael Wilson wrote the screenplay, but they couldn't use it because he'd been blacklisted. Aye, aye, aye. They were gonna use someone else's name, but Wilson was livid, so it was the only movie in history there's no screenwriter credit. Years later in the 90s, they put Wilson's name back on. So I mentioned that. One little side, which is interesting about all these directors, that happened in 1950. I mentioned George Stevens being head of the Screen Directors Guild. There's a Screen Actors Guild, but Screen Directors Guild was very important because directors are fighting for bigger cut from the producers. Directors always feel they're getting not the right deal from the studio. And there's some truth to that. That's why they start lady taking a percentage of the net and the gross, because Hollywood can see so have creative bookkeeping, and they'll say, "Well, there's no profit." So if you do the net and the gross, you're going to end up with something. By the way, Weiler was paid fifteen million, uh, five million, and eight percent of the gross, three percent of the net, highest. That's why I did Ben Hur, but the Screen Actors Guild president. Stevens had given it up. He was on the board. Was a man named Joseph L. Mankiewicz, whose nephew 
is now the host on Turner Movie Channel. One of that. Yeah. Mankiewicz was very creative. He'd help with the screenplay of Citizen Kane. He won Best Director twice for uh, Three Letters to Eve, 1949, and late, This Lady Eve in 1950. Wonderful movie. Won many Academy Awards. But he'd been a communist, or maybe he'd been uh, many were in the 30s. Cecil B. DeMille, who was very conservative, and, um, you know, might have been somewhat anti-Semitic. Mankiewicz happened to be Jewish. There's some thought that was part of his thing. He wanted to remove Mankiewicz. His stated reason was good enough. Hey, this is during the blacklist era. We don't want any communists. We're in enough trouble from Congress. So they have a meeting, and it's for and against. Ooh. Weiler speaks out, and what? And the thing that set people against Tamil was he read some of the Europeans, Fred Zinnemann, William Wilder, Weiler. He put very uh, some European accents on the name. Willy Weiler, Fred Zinnemann, purposely playing with their names. Weiler made a beautiful speech. George Stevens spoke very strongly about keeping Mankiewicz. But they all waited, and not only have I read this, I've seen a documentary with Mankiewicz is talking about the great John Ford. They all assumed Ford was conservative, and yes, he was in terms of American values, patriotism, serving. Ford was a fatalist. He's romantic, but he knew you lose more than you win. But the fight's worth it, and you're honor-bound to stand your ground. I happen to agree with that. You have to stand your ground. Uh, that's a Hemingway philosophy. You can laugh at it, but that's how we won wars. So Whether you're going to win Mankiewicz's or not. Fate. Yeah, so Mankiewicz, so they're waiting for Ford to speak. Yeah, and John yeah. Ford had a pipe. He used to chew in a handkerchief, old gray flannels, tweed jacket. But they figured because he's a friend of George, John, John Wayne's, Ward Bond, who are members of American Freedom Organization. Protect the First Amendment. They're against all these. They want all these guys blacklisted. It was really very much this way then as a movie and book Trumbo shows. So Ford gets up and he says, uh, Cecil, in my view, there's no question, you're by far the best director in this room. And there are probably 60 directors in this, someone's big house room, chairs, you know, lined up. It's a big ballroom in the house and the board sitting on the table, you know, long yeah, table. Yeah. You just imagine it. No question. But I don't like what you're saying here today. And furthermore, I don't like you. Ooh. And sat down. Ooh. And that George Stevens wrote at Mankiewicz said, when John Ford had such respect, when he spoke, we knew he was no far-left liberal. We knew he was Irish to the core. But, of course, the Irish are always against English. He's sort of a maverick. But regardless, he didn't like that. And Mankiewicz stayed on as director, uh, as, as head of the thing. 
But the blacklist uh, influenced all these guys one way or another. Weiler, Weiler got in trouble. He had to write a letter. He wrote a beautiful letter to his studio saying, I spent my whole life, I went to war fighting against the, now I'm trying to fight for people's rights. Because he used a blacklisted writer at As doing one. these magazines, it was called Counterattack, Channels. These were magazines that were squirrels always writing names of, uh, of uh, suggested um, communists. Harry Belafonte was blacklisted. Crazy. I went to a boarding school. The only famous person other than me, I'm just joking, <laughs> was the great Pete Seeger, folk singer, who had the occasion on some alumni things, his class would be there. And uh, to hear Pete Seeger with a banjo singing, uh, We Shall Ever Come, or If I Had a Hammer, or Where Have All the Flowers Gone, all of which he wrote, uh, is astounding. He was blacklisted. That's crazy. He was kicked out of those weavers, kicked off television. He went around college campuses, but he never named names. And that was a horrible thing at that era. If you name names, that was the only way you could be uh, rehabilitated. To prove that you were a good guy or good woman, you had to name names. Cruel. If you did name names, you were contempt of court. So you were sort of damned by the, you one, you were an informer, and about a third of them, actually, Miss T, gave up names, um, gave names. People forget that. People talk about a few people, but actually about a third gave names. That's terrible. And a lot of people lost their careers. They lost their livelihood. Yeah. One of the worst cases, interesting enough, was a director I was a lot of respect for. He did a uh, very fine movie, uh, uh, Murder My Sweet, 1945 the best version of the great Raymond Chandler, um, Farewell, My Lovely. The Big Sleep's also very good by Howard Hawks. Uh, but his is the best, I, I'd say, my view. He goes to jail. I, I, he doesn't like jail. Nobody does. So he goes back from Danbury Prison, which is like a country club, and he... Uh, I actually visited a uh, person I knew in there once. I won't go to the story. And uh, I tried to take him uh, uh, food. They didn't like it. Anyway, uh, it was sort of a white crime. But anyway, he decides to talk. He names uh. the very producer who's helped produce three of his biggest hits, Adrian Scott, who doesn't work for 15, 18 years. That's not good. And he went on to a big success, Dimitri. Trumbo, in his book, or in a, no, in a speech he made in 1971 when he was getting a Screen Actors Award, I'm sorry, he made it, it's in the book, Trumbo, okay. spoke about this. He said, in the end, there were no villains. We were all victims. That's right. And that took a great maturity on his part. Now, some said, some of the others were angry, how can you do this? He was well. Yeah, he was successful because he went down to Mexico with his wife to live cheaply, and he wrote for King Features. You know, the monster attacks the gorilla, but he put food on the plates of his uh, children. I think Otto Preminger came to his house. You're so right. And, yes, and yes. He said you're going to do yes. this, and he helped him. I mean, nobody, everybody on the street went. What? You couldn't say that better. 
That was for the movie. Uh, well, I just embarrassed. No, I just saw the movie. You know, my... Yeah. Well, two came and both take credit. One was Spartacus. Kurt Douglas was producer and actor. Oh, Preminger was for the Exodus. Yes. Even when he say Paul Newman. 1956. Yes, you're absolutely right. The thing about Spartacus, that was the book that was all based on, it was written by, there really was a Spartacus, by the way. And he really, they really did escape from the uh, gladiator schools, put together, and they actually defeated yeah. a couple of Roman legions. Then the Romans literally wiped them out. But the book was written by a guy named Howard Fast. Not only was Howard Fast communist, he was proudly to be a communist, and he went to prison. If you think about Spartacus, it's very easily could be considered a communist story. Workers' revolt, right out of Lenin and Trotsky. The poor revolt, take up arms. But Preminger, to his credit, they put him on the credits. Interesting enough about Spartacus, good movie. Lawrence Olivier, Gene Simmons, Woody Strode, the great black actor who John Ford really made. Kennedy was president, and his brother Bobby was uh, January of November of 60 or 61. It was right after he got elected, I think. Doesn't matter, it was like it's for sure. And there was a big thing, I think it was called the Uptown. It's right near the White House. It doesn't exist anymore. Right near the White House. I've been there a couple of times. One of those beautiful old kind of, uh, you know, Art Deco theaters. They went and they were booed at because the American Legion, which was very powerful then, to the right politically, all veterans, hundreds are standing, you scapegoat, you bastard Kennedy, because they were supporting a movie written by Donald Trumbo. Oh, that's a horrible thing. And had a Hopper, the great uh, gossip columnist or columnist. She was very conservative. She went on air. She had a radio show. She went on air. Do not see this movie, Spartacus. Because a damn communist wrote the screenplay. That's horrible. And yeah. John was also in the, in the war as well. And I believe the Navy, John Kennedy. Yes, that's absolutely so true. I, I yeah, think that's that, absolutely true. So and my, so you'd think the Legion would understand. Yeah, and yeah. You, that's so true. Michael Wilson, I mentioned earlier, yeah. he'd been a Marine in World War II, decorated. So now he's blacklisted because, you know, maybe he became uh, a pacifist. Many veterans do become pacifists because they've been in war and they see um, the really dark sides of war. It's a very good point you make. But it's hard not to talk about these uh, great directors and leave out Without that. Without mentioning yeah. all this. <clears throat> the blacklist, because it affected them, their works. Uh, Weiler was livid, but he, he had dinner, oh, by the way, in Rome. Some of the blacklisted writers, Robert Ross is one of the best, they fled, to, Joseph Losey, they fled to Europe. That's right. And some came back, some just stayed. England, France, very good, they're terrific. He had a big dinner. This came back. Uh, Weiler has dinner with communists. Oh, yeah, yeah. By the way, Robert Rosen, uh, Rosen, Rosen, he directed one of the first shot-on-location movies ever in America, The Naked City, 1948, New York City. 
And you may recall, there's a wonderful TV series I used to watch all the time, The Naked Cities. And I always remember the opening. And the movie starts the same way. They pan in on Manhattan from overhead, like West Side Story. There's seven million stories in, this, in the Naked City. This is one of them, meaning it's a big city. Tonight, we're going to tell you one story. He later came back and did The Great Hustler, 1962, the pool play, George C. Scott, Academy Award, supporting actor. Many think Paul Newman's greatest role. And Jackie Gleason, brilliant as Minnesota Fats, the other champion pool player who plays Newman in two huge matches, one in the beginning, one at the end. George C. Scott, who was a Marine, who won the Academy Award for Patton, turned down the Academy Award. I don't blame him, but when did this movement end? When did they stop with this communism? Yeah, yeah. When and you know, it, he you know said, when it ends? He said, I think all things are ridiculous. He said, is, is to giving an award to one person? He has a good point. And uh, uh, he was a great actor, George Scott. You know, people say he was difficult. They're all difficult. Uh, I love what uh, I was doing a book talk on Maria Callas, believe it or not. I and um, she was in one movie, by the way. Uh, Medea, the great Euripides play, and uh, by Pasolini, who was then murdered. Murdered. Um, unfortunately, it was right when Jackie Kennedy had married Onassis. She was going through a lot, but she was good, but he was a good director. He did not direct her well. His film, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, is considered perhaps the greatest religious movie ever made. However, he was very left-wing, so some people say, yeah, it's about the communist Jesus. The thing was that we were not getting along with Russia at all. No. And we found them to be the enemy, and that is why this nonsense yes. took so much meaning and so much... You couldn't say it better. What a lot of, frankly, liberal friends have forget. They say stayed so long enamored to Russia. Then... We found the Rosenbergs, it turns out, were guilty. Alger Hiss was guilty. Yeah, sorry. So we had the Cold War, and you had actual spies stealing secrets to get for the Russians. What they never mentioned, and including some known historians, to their everlasting discredit, maybe because I grew up in a small town, we see kind of all classes. I grew up on a farm, small farm. Korean War, 1950-1950. We lost 36,000 boys in three years, exactly three years, 12,000 a year, fighting hardcore communists. And many of these spies had long names, were foreign Europeans, urban, going to Columbia, NYU. I grew up, their names were Smith, Brown, Johnson. They were a threat. And that's not a thing about bias, it's reality. They were going, who are these people? Who are these long names? And they're, they're spying on our own country. Our, my son's over in Korea. I it wasn't their sons in Korea. It never is. There was a great dichotomy and yes. very hard time. It was a very tough and, uh, and people confuse, they call it McCarthyism. That's another misnomer. McCarthy never investigated Hollywood. 
his Senate subcommittee was against spies in the government. Right. Whether we agree with it or not, it was the House and Mexico. The funniest thing on the House was the chairman, Jay Parnell Thomas, was actually Republican from New Jersey. And he was the one who kept saying, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And he would bellow that as they were trying to make speeches about freedom of speech. He ended up in prison because he had put his wife and daughter on the payroll in his Senate office, a Congress office. So he's in the same prison in Danbury as Trumbo. A guy they put in contempt of court. You can't make this up, only in America. Really? But a lot of people don't realize this. Right during those hearings in September, October of 47, it was called the Waldorf meeting, Waldorf Astoria. All the heads of studios, Fox, MGM, Warner Brothers, uh, MGM, you know, you mentioned that, Universal, RKO, met with Philip Johnson. He was head of the Motion Picture Association. And they voted unanimously, and he made a speech, that public speech for the news uh, uh, newsreels on, and movies. TV didn't exist, but also printed. That every one of these people was going to have to pledge they were not no longer uh, had never been nor had were a communist, or they would they could not work, because the studios were petrified. That Congress was going to really even do more investigative Damage. work. Damage work, and these moguls, most were immigrants, you know, from Poland. They were very patriotic. Their movies were so super patriotic. They make uh, Custer look like a hero. I'm just joking. If you look at the movies we grew up on, because like many immigrants, that generation of immigrants, they adored this country. It's very funny. And they were actually very patriotic. They didn't want to be associated with communists. They didn't want, uh, uh, for instance, Daryl Zanuck, who was a Greek Orthodox, he loved John Ford. He says, the best director I ever produced by far. He was very worried about Grapes of Wrath because people were saying, well, Steinbeck's a lefty. Steinbeck's a lefty. He, maybe he's a commie. All his people, the poor people, the four farmers out of Salinas County, you know, uh, Salinas Valley, rather. And the Depression, people were out of work. So Zanuck actually went out to see some of these farmers. Probably on his private plane from Hollywood. <laughs> but so what? He actually went out and he said, yeah. Wow, their conditions are really terrible. I love that story about Zanuck. He wanted proof that they weren't just making up the story about the poor migrant uh, workers. So uh, it's an interesting, um, um, what I love about studying this, and I will tell you this, I have to laugh about this. You asked earlier, it was very kind of you asked about my memory. I will say uh, I'm a little amazed myself. I'm, I shouldn't say this. I'm astounded. I, uh, I'm astounded. And, you know, when I did that quote of 90 million people a week or the movies, the only school I ever did well in was a pre-prep school. My life went downhill after that. Wonderful little school called Indian Mountain. You can't make the name up. No. In Lakeville, Connecticut. <clears throat> I grew up nearby Litchfield County, but I was actually a border. And um, 
Wakefield's near Salisbury, uh, Sharon, beautiful part of Connecticut. Very, and we just say we threw a touch football from Litchfield Green, we'd hit a boarding school. So I'm up in the library and I'm doing my history term paper and I'm doing it on movies, motion, the motion picture industry. Well, there was Encyclopedia Britannica and I think one picture book on Hollywood and one book on movies. That's all there was. It's not a lot. We didn't have a big library. But I remembered that fact of in 1946, 90% of movies went to the movies once a week. I did read it again preparation for my talks on film. And I started laughing. I said, I knew this. I've known it since the eighth grade. I remember, for instance, 1950. My friend, my best friend I grew up with in the little town of Harlem, went to Nice Litchfield. I stayed in his house um, with his nice lady friend in Stanford, Connecticut, North Stanford, so I call high country. And we grew up here going to a lot of movies, drive-in movies in Litchfield County. There were three theaters then, the Warner, the Palace of the State, two drive-in movies. I can remember 1950, when I saw the two-movie channel, I was laughing. I'm at the, the concession counter, which I loved. I always timed it so I have to wait in line. Even at 12, I try to flirt with a gal behind the thing who they were had, no in, yeah, had no interest in me. I had a big box of popcorn on my right, a giant Coke on my left, and a huge chocolate of bonbons between my teeth. That like was that it. Knife. And on the left was a painting from The Last of the Mohegans on the cliff, the famous one at the end. Can't make this up. I push in because of swing doors, and I didn't want to. The movie was starting, and the movie opens, and it's like parchment from ye old days. You're like a, a yellow kind of parchment. Yes, yes. And an arrow comes flying into the parchment. And the movie's called Flaming Arrow with Burt Lancaster. And, oh, my God, was I in love with Virginia Mayo. (laughs) Captain Horatio Hornblower. And they made her look like something out of a Romney or one of those great painters of that era in England. Romney. Unbelievable. I've never been to a drive-in. It never existed. Well, drive-ins are great. My brother had, you'll love this, two years older. Uh, we got a lot of fights playing hockey and baseball and football, but we were very close. And I was better, I got better as an athlete because of him. And his, uh, doesn't matter what age, his, had a big birthday in Newport at the York Yacht Club. And I told people as a big brother, I was better because I had a big brother who was better than I was at many things. So you wanted and, to excel. And it pushed me, it pushed That's me. That's right. And uh, 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 so uh, he had... He loved cars, and he had a 1936 Ford Roadster, beautiful. A gangster used to drive the old movies, or Jimmy Stewart a date, you know. But he had a 1956 Mercury engine in it, 56 Merc, and his friends would talk this car talk. And we only had one firehouse, one little grocery store, and a gas station in our town. But the gas station where he worked let him go in there at night with a with a lift. He put this big engine in his car. Oh. So a hot rod engine. He was dating the most beautiful 
gal in the county, uh, and my father and other guys started a little Harlem Winter Tennis Club. I have to say the chicest club in America is the HTC. Oh, Biddy, is that the Hoverford Tennis Club? I said, oh, the Harlem Winter Tennis Club. <laughs> One tennis court, an apple orchard, and a gazebo. So she's his date, and I'm in the rumble seat. These have rumble seats in the back. Okay. Smoking Lucky Strikes at okay. 15 and Jester was trying to kiss her. It's oh. all quite innocent, because I was I was right there, the top was down. <laughs> I'd say, hey, Dave, push in the lighter, meaning the lighter so I can light my cigarette. So he's, to this day, he still says, you little son of a gun. <laughs> Every time I thought I could kiss Penny, he'd say, oh, so. You, you, you ruined it. All right, so anyway, that's the driving. Driving's were great, of course, they all ended. What was wonderful, you'd be, well, our mom had a beautiful convertible, we'd sit in a convertible, and there'd be stars out. So you, if you're watching a Western especially, or any movie about the outdoors, but Westerns especially, you felt you're out there with the cowboys. It's hard to say that, but you really felt the mood. I, uh, I, I believe you, I believe you. Now we're gonna finish up with Ila Kazan. He was a Greek, right? Yes, yes. I'm doing Eli Kazan talk. I'm doing um, uh, Thursday, April 4th at the Society for Arts at the Dixon Building. It's a two-hour class because I show film clips. Yeah. Um, so it, I don't talk the whole time, and I'm showing a lot of film clips of this one. 2.30 to 4.30, Thursday afternoon, April 4th. And it's the last of my four film talks. Kazan is very interesting. He's also part of the golden era. He came on a little later, but only because he was very involved in the theater before movies. And I'll explain. He also did go to World War II, but he was not established enough. They, the, the guys, men I mentioned, Weiler, Ford, Capra, uh, 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 George Stevens, they were giants when they went to war. So they got everything they wanted, budgets, film crews. Kazan served like a lot of guys, what they call special services. Well, they put on shows for the troops. That's what I wanted to do. You know, they, they scheduled the, the dancing girls and the music, the Bob Hope show. I mean, they'd say, but he did serve. Okay, Greek, but kind of well-to-do Greek immigrants. They actually had a rug company or yeah, rug company in New York City. He gets a scholarship to go to Williams College, which is US News still ranks at number one in the country. It's a wonderful league, by the way. I call it the Small Ivy League. Williams, Amherst, Hamilton, uh, Trinity, where I went to summer school. I think it's better than the Ivy League today. Anyway, he he did very well there. He didn't join a fraternity, but he waited on tables in a fraternity. But the fraternity guys liked him. He then went to Yale Drama School. And there, that's also where Marilyn Streep and uh, Paul Newman graduated from. Yes, and she went there for de for designing the yes. clothing as a designer, not as an actress. Yes, that's exactly. Then in the 30s, out of college, depression, he goes to work for very, I'm gonna call it progressive. Some would call it left-wing, some would call it communist. Progressive theater group called the Group Theater, started by Cheryl Crawford 
and uh, Harold, Harold Clorman downtown Lower West Side. And in the summers, I went to Nichols, Connecticut. Connecticut's a small state. I've been on a motorcycle almost every road. I went to three boarding schools, one kicked out, <laughs> pre-boarding, Avon. I never heard of Nichols, but it's somewhere in Connecticut, small town. One of the playwrights was, and he was acting, not writing, it was acting. One of the playwrights was well-known, Clifford Odets, very well-known at that time. He did two very progressive plays, Waiting for Lefty and, um, yeah, I forgot the other one. Waiting for Lefty um, is just what it is, Waiting for Lefty, Waiting for the Left Wing. It is a cab strike. Again, it's the proletariats revolting. And there's Ely Kazan on stage. It was a big hit, yelling, strike, strike, strike. Uh -uh. I mention this time because for 18 months, he joined the Communist Party. And they didn't put him in jail. He quit in fury because the Communists infiltrated and wanted them to strike against the group theater. It's like the Communists were fighting themselves. So he quit. But this is on his record. He was been a communist. Okay. Now he gets into directing a theater. This is a great story. And I'll make a little side. In the 1940s, one could argue, in the early 50s, was the golden age of Broadway. Drama and musicals. What did I mention? The greatest hit, longest-running musical in history till South Pacific was Oklahoma, okay. 1943. Why the war was on, it wasn't a musical about urban New York or Boston. It wasn't a drawing room comedy. It wasn't an old coward. It was the West. It was oh, Oklahoma. It was America, open skies, freedom, tough people. We're going to win. Make them happy. Make them happy. But it was about America. Mm -hmm. Huge hit. Pal Joey. Rogers and Hart, oh my God, Ladies of Tramp, uh, Bewitched, Bewildered, you, you can't beat that score. Okay. No. Guys and Dolls? Yeah. yeah, Guys and Dolls came along, exactly. Guys and Dolls are a great example. South Pacific, uh, Carousel. Uh, so, dramas. Oh, Arthur my. Miller, the great playwright, yes. is about to give up. And is, he's met Eli Kazan, and Kazan says, no, no, we can do this. And they do a play called 1940, All My Sons, mm -hmm. which, by the way, Annette Benning, who I think is married to... Uh, Warren Beatty. They, Warren Beatty, thank you. Miss D.I. did my... I never get his name. He married to Shirley MacLaine. I mean, sister of Shirley MacLaine, brother. Exactly. Uh, anyway, they're doing revive, seen two revivals, one at Drama Works here and one on Broadway, one of my favorite plays, based on a true story. That play won... The Pulitzer Prize and Best Director. But it's, yes, but it's a true story. True story. And it's a horror story. It's a horror story. And it's in Ohio and Wright-Patterson Airfield. And it's also the uh, National Museum of the Air Force is there. I didn't know that. That's where uh, M <coughs> Memphis Bell is, actually. It was, it happened more. Guys were making parts, small parts, and they knew it was flawed, but they were rushed. They were under pressure, and they did it, and many planes crashed. It's about that and the tragedies involving one family 
Um, Kazan won Best Director. For that one? First big movie he'd ever directed. And Miller, never done before since, dedicates the play to his director. That has never been done in history. He understood Kazan was the one that got him to do it, and it was Kazan's direction that made it say, Great cast. Ed Begley plays the father. I think Arthur Kennedy doesn't matter. Now, two other things he does in the 40s. Ah, Death of a Salesman. <laughs> Fantastic. Another Tony. And that one, of course, that one, by the way, I'm going to talk later about a great movie that is in. That starred, I've seen two versions. I saw Dustin Hoffman in the 80s on Broadway and Brian Dennehy in the 90s. And Arthur Miller was still alive. And he'd be on the Charlie Rose show. The Charlie Rose is no longer on his show for good reason. But Charlie Rose had him on. And Miller didn't want to say it. He had to be complimentary to Dennehy. Hoffman had a tough time with it because it was based on his uncle. Supposed to be a big, hulky man. Hoffman understood that. He plays him as a nervous nut. And I couldn't stand the performance, but some people like it. The definitive performance, and Frederick March did it in the movie nominated for Academy Award. The definitive performance was a great, great actor, Lee Jacob, who actually had a heart attack while he was doing this play. Aye, aye. A side thing was he didn't have a lot of money, and a guy he didn't even know paid the bills, Frank Sinatra. For his funeral. Frank Sinatra had seen the movie, the play, wow. and thought it was the best thing, and he actually paid his medical bills. It's a great story. It is. They met later, but not before. He didn't even know him, but he knew him by, so he wins another Tony. Then the great Tennessee Williams, he does Streetcar Named Desire. Exactly. By the way, Streetcar Named Desire, opening night on Broadway, 1949, I think, or seven, one of the two. 35-minute standing ovation. Now, I've been to Dream Girls, few others. And I've seen over 100 plays on Broadway because I went all the time. I lived in New York. I've seen about 120 plays, Broadway and off-Broadway. And some in London, some down here, a lot of summer stock. I was a kid, my friends. Oh, I saw all those plays. <laughs> well, I saw them at Sharon Playhouse, which is a barn. My rich friends saw them from their penthouses in New York. But anyway, so... Marlon Brando was third, in yeah, Yes, and Bruce Atkinson wrote... Here's a review in the New York Times. Tonight, the face of American acting has changed forever in the performance by Marlon Brando. And 39 Back. minutes standing ovation. ovation. That's unheard of. Standing ovation. 35 minutes standing ovation. I've seen a sporting events. Ali, I saw in person. Um, great fight. We beat Norton 15th round, last big ball, Yankee Stadium. Yeah, 10 minutes. Not 35 minutes is a long time. So then he does the movie. Oh, meanwhile, he does a couple of movies in the 40s. Tree in Brooklyn, very fine movie. And he's nominated. Then he does a movie called Gentleman's Agreement. Fantastic. For which he won Best Director and it got Best Movie. So he's won two Tonys, now Best Director. Gentleman Agreement is a very good movie. It's about a very waspy publishing company. I think it was modeled on the one I worked for. And they want to do a story about anti-Semitism. So Gregory Peck, oh, love well, waspy, takes a, a name that could be perceived as Jewish, 
And because of the name, he sees what it's like, can't get in a nice hotel, they go to a nice resort, he can't do anything in Darien, Connecticut. And, but it's very complex because his girlfriend, Dorothy McGuire, a great actress, she says, yeah, but you don't really feel for this. I mean, you're just doing this. And Peck says, no, I really think this is wrong. The publisher, to his credit, says, no, this is wrong. We have to expose this. But there's a, one of the editors, Celeste Holm, very good actress, she goes and says, you can't do this. Because I'm Jewish, but I changed my name to fit in. So there's a lot of levels of complexity. Best movie and huge box office hit. I mean, not that it wouldn't be, but you wouldn't think that kind of movie would. Yeah. Then he does another movie called Pinky. It's about a thin, uh, light-colored black gal goes north, does very well in nursing school. Wheelock, where my mother went in Boston, famous nursing school, has a white fiancé, comes back to uh, South Georgia, Alabama, took care for her grandmother, who brought her up. Big bro. But other blacks in the town resent her because she's highfalutin. White men want to date her. Black men want to date her. She now is a nurse for a very wealthy curmudgeon, the great uh, Ethel Barrymore. Oh, I love And her. they have a very tough relationship. The end, Ethel Barrymore leaves her whole estate to this gal. And... She knows she did it for a purpose to turn into a school for underprivileged children, white and black. And Ooh. it's this movie was, they wanted to film, put a black woman, but Jean, Jean Crane, fine actress, played uh, Pinky. Because the producer said, if we have a black woman who has a white fiance who comes back, he comes back to court her, but then he realizes that she's black. No one in the South will book it. Not only will they not see it from Maryland all the way to through Texas, they won't show the film and won't have a box office. And it won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not one theater. So then, but by having the white woman play, it was okay. So then he does the film, Streetcar and Desire. Oh, that was and of course, in that is, it's very interesting, that two Academy Awards won by an English woman. Gone to the Wind, played a Southern Belle, and a New Orleans aristocrat on faded uh, 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 Blanche Dubois. Uh, Kim Hunter won Supporting Actress. She won Best Actress. Carl Malden won Supporting Actor for playing Mitch, the, the suitor. Brando was nominated, didn't win. Humphrey Bogart won that year for Best Actor in Huff, um, African Queen. Oh, that was My really own good. feeling is Brando had a motorcycle. He sort of was a rebel. <laughs> he was an establishment. Okay. Then he does a movie called Viva Zapata, based on the revolutionary Zapata, written by John Steinbeck. This movie got Kazan in trouble because it was considered leftist. Aye, aye. Zapata was a communist going against the government. There's a hardcore communist in the movie, and this is after Kazan had actually talked to that HUAC. And it's Kazan's answer saying, this guy, this is what you get with communism. It's a guy named uh, Joseph Weissman, very fine, 
I left out something. Kazan, in the 40s, while he was doing stage, co-founded with Cheryl Crawford and Robert Lewis the famous actor studio, which is all about method acting, the son of Slosky School of Acting. I won't tell you what it's like. It's all emotional within and a great uh, Lee Strasberg was yeah. the director for 25 years. And I have a, a slide on my book talk, uh, my film talk. I show uh, Bill Monroe, early Paul Newman, and Pacino, just as three. The list goes on for three pages. Of That's long. true. Funny thing about acting, about method. In a movie, which I, I just can't remember the name. Um, anyway, not one of Hitchcock's best. Paul Newman was miscast with Julie Andrews. And anyway, Paul Newman is a big method actor. And he turns his back and he's still writhing on the set. And he says to Alfred Hitchcock, I, I don't know what my motivation is. That's a big method thing. What's my motivation? You're supposed to think about your, your, the grandmother you hated or something. <laughs> the great Alfred Hitchcock looks at Newman. Mr. Newman, your salary is your motivation. <laughs> Another time doing Marathon Man, which they filmed around the reservoir partly. I lived near it uh, by a, a 96th Street of Penthouse right near the park, the reservoir in New York. They filmed part of the Marathon Man. Dustin Hoffman and the great Lawrence Olivier. And Hoffman's off in the corner, kind of all weird. He can't do it. I don't know. I can't do this thing. And Olivier said, young man, just stand up, look at the camera, and say your lines. This is the classical acting. Frederick March, Spencer Tracy, Lawrence Olivier. I'm not saying one's the better, but Kazan created a whole school of different acting, and Brando is one of them. He did. I think and Brando so, won eight, well, on the waterfront. Yes. So now we'll get to the So Beavis' spot is also Brando. That's right. And, Brando, and Anthony Quinn, his brother, wins the Academy Award for Supporting Actor. He also won later for Lust for Life, the movie about Van Gogh with Kirk Douglas. Oh, right. And I'm embarrassed. He plays another painter, Gauguin, maybe? Anyway, he plays one of Van Gogh's friends, and he wins the Academy Award. Uh, a great actor. By the way, he also went on the road with Streetcar Named Desire, and some say he was almost as good as Brando uh, Quinn. He was a great actor. So He was. Now he does, you're absolutely right, 1954. Now this is interesting. This is very much the blacklist. 1954, he does On the Waterfront. It's written by Bud Schulberg. I should mention this. Okay, Bud Schulberg, who's also been blacklisted and also gave names. Schulberg wrote What Makes Sammy Run, among others. It was based on newspaper articles that appeared, and they were investigating the, I think, wasn't the Key Favre Commission? Anyway, it was a big investigation of corruption on the waterfront in New York, maybe some other uh, cities, I'm not sure. But in Hoboken, which is a huge port then, right across New York and Hoboken. So this was about the union's corruption in them and all the human drama. And the head of the union is Johnny Friendly, they're all Irish, and the great Lee J. Cobb again, who had been in uh, the theater of Streetcar. 
He's Johnny Friendly. Brando's name is Terry Malloy. He's a former fighter who was going all the way up. He was ranked, had a shot at the title, then something happened. Uh, so now he's kind of a stumble bum. But his brother, you can't make this up, Charlie Jett, who has a beautiful camel hair coat, who didn't graduate, but has two years of college, so he's a genius. He's the right-hand man, and some say the butcher for Johnny Friendly. So his brother is working with the union. I'm not going to say they're bad, the union. But the crime commission is trying to subpoena guys who work in the union to talk about how, because when the ship comes in, they show a great scene. They only have so many slots to work. And you notice about six actors do this on the air. A big back is the guy's little, little uh, tablets. If you have a tablet, you get to work. Interesting. And some go like this. And what that means, I'll chip in a couple bucks back. But the others don't get it. So now they swarm for a few. It's a terrible scene. Okay. They set up one of Terry's friends. Terry Malloy raises pigeons very nice on top of a tenement. And, of course, there's TV antennas. And, by the way, there are crosses. You can't have a movie with more Christian religious symbolism than on the waterfront. There are crosses throughout the whole movie, telephone poles, fences, um, uh, TV antennas. So he's supposed to get his buddy to go up on the roof, say, hey, what are your pigeons? I found one of your pigeons. I'll meet you up on the roof with him. Uh-huh. They both have cages. Suddenly you see a picture, and there's two mob guys. And next you know, you hear a guy screaming. They throw him off the roof. Now they're on for so. This starts a whole dilemma in his mind. In the end, he meets a beautiful girl whose father's in the union, even Ray Saint, whose first movie. And it's a beautiful movie. Uh, interesting thing about this movie is, in this film, one of the themes is, under certain circumstances, it's correct to rat on someone. Meaning, if you know this mob's corrupt and you're part of it and you want it, why not rat on them? You're actually doing a good thing. Why protect them? You could say that about the Catholic Church. I shouldn't say it, but I will. <laughs> if you know what's going on, it's a fact. Well, you should. You should. There's a good example. You're not being loyal to the church or the, the higher-ups. So what? You're exposing. Or if you saw it in boarding school, doesn't matter where you saw it. Damn. Because he had named names, Kazan had. Worse, he had taken out a full-page ad in the New York Times. <clears throat> His wife, who was the daughter of the Yale president, very intellectual, had written. Cassia, how bad evil communism was. Ooh. So people thought he went too far. Naming names is one thing, but taking this holier-than-thou attitude on a page ad. But his career went like this. He didn't lose a, he didn't lose a step. That's amazing. He named, everyone he named, but maybe one, was either dead or they already knew they were communists. From the group theater, that group theater I mentioned. That's all right. from that era. Okay, Arthur Miller, his buddy, didn't talk. He couldn't get permission to go to Europe when Marilyn Monroe was filming A Prince of the Showgirl later with uh, Lawrence Olivier. 
Is he married? They would give him a passport. Was he married to her? So he does a play entitled "View from the Bridge," and this is a story of Italian immigrants in Brooklyn. They're hiding two illegal immigrants in their loft or their their attic. The uncle maybe likes his niece a little too much, who lives with him. But she now falls for the immigrant boy. Oops. The uncle turns in the immigrants, and they're deported. But the niece is heartbroken. The wife is done, and he's ruined everything. So Miller's story to Kazan you ruin everything by ratting, by informing, by talking. But Kazan has a valid point. Under certain circumstances, it has a, the irony is, and I don't know how it really solved, two years later, Miller's no longer popular. And his marriage is on the brakes. I met Marilyn Monroe, by the way, in Woodbury, Connecticut. That's a long story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never forgot it. She, uh, because she lived, they lived in Roxbury. And we'd drive, anyway. Uh, now I lost, of course, think of that, Kazan. Anyway, so one, but Kazan directed After the Fall, which is not a very good play, but the play was about a celebrity and a, a Hollywood actress. It was sort of autobiographical about Miller and Marilyn Monroe. So they reconciled. But um, it's interesting. So anyway, on the waterfront, one best movie, best director, eight, ran up. Yeah, eight. eight Academy Awards, tied, best years of our lives, tied, gone with the wind. And by the way, American Film Institute, when they did their top hundred movies, number eight of all and, time. And Leonard Bernstein did the very good Muzica. score, <laughs> and it's one of the greatest scores ever. And he only Amazing. did a few movie scores. Um, um, he did American in Paris movie, I think. Uh, he only did American Paris. It doesn't matter. Oh, West Side Story. And he did West Side Story. And in Brooklyn, Splendor yeah, yeah. in the Grand. Yes, yeah, that was early. Movie. And then Kazan, it's interesting, he did a couple of movies. The other movies that he was well-known was, um, God, oh, boy. God, it's from that woman poet. Oh, boy, I'm just out of mind. Uh, Unrequited uh, Love? Uh, you know, 1961, uh, Warren Beatty and... uh no. Was, no, not shampoo. Good guess. Um, it's a love story. Unrequited love of the twenties. Um, Natalie Wood, uh, Splendor in the Grass. Splendor Comes with that poem, but I forgot who the poet is. And they almost quote do it. The twenties, they don't. The father, Pat Ingle, a great, great method actor. He says, "Son, you go to Yale." <laughs> he does, and uh, and he ends up marrying. A gal whose father runs the pizza store, but that's okay. That's he okay. falls on an Italian gal. She no is never married. Last scene, she goes to the girlfriend to visit him. It's a beautiful scene. He comes out, Warren Beatty, and his wife's in the background with a baby, and they talk. And we've all been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, not unlike the one, uh, the way we were. That last scene. You know, you see an old girlfriend or old boyfriend or uh, uh, years later, and if there's still something there, and it clearly was, he um, 
he did another good movie he was nominated for best movie was America America based on a book he had written um, about a, a Greek immigrant family very well some people say it's the best movie ever made about immigrants and it was a bestseller he then wrote a book called The Arrangement, 1965. So now he's at Broadway, three Tonys. Wow. Two earned and then one honorary oh, Oscar. Right. As you, we'll talk about that in a minute. Maybe I'll close with that. He wrote a book called The Arrangement, 44 weeks on the top 10, top 10 of the bestseller list of the New York Times. Unbelievable. Number one for 13 weeks. Great reviews. Unfortunately, he directed the movie in 1969 or It was terrible. I just saw it on cable. I wow. couldn't believe it. It was terrible. The actors were terrible. He wanted Brando. Uh, uh, he got Kirk Douglas, who was just totally miscast. You know, there was no subtly to Kirk Douglas acting. I like Kirk Douglas. I do. I loved his But he's good at adventure stuff. Yeah. Okay, Corral, Berline Caster. Yeah. Seven Days of Bay. No subtlety. Very little nuance. He said, I want a Brando. So but Brando was a bear so heavy now. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I love this. And he was receding hairline. He wouldn't wear a wig. <laughs> oh. That's what Brando did, Apocalypse Now, actually. I just know that was later. Doesn't matter. So that was the end of his script. But in 1999, very good point. Carl Malden is on the board of the Academy Awards. There's a board. And he's very highly respected. I think he'd been president of it. Gregory Peck had been president. You know, it's a big prestigious thing. And Malden was highly respected. And Czechoslovakian background. Wonderful actor. Method actor. And he'd been in like a number of movies with Brando, other movies too. He once got mad at Brando. They were filming a could have been streetcar. He said, Marlon, you're stepping on my lines. Oh. And he said, I couldn't believe Marlon Brando was so great after that. He realized he was hogging too much and he never did again. Just, and uh, I'll just, so they wanted to give Kazan, who was still alive, he lived till 93, until he was 93, honorary Academy Award. I remember because I was down here, I was just working and retiring at the time, late 90s, 99, I think it was. Yes, it was 1999. Very controversial. Everyone kept talking about all this terrible thing he named names. Aye. Not one article from the entire left wing, including New York Times, ever mentioned a third of the people named names. Lee J. Cobb named names. Many named names. Because Kazan had done that ad vilifying communism to his credit, I think. We all know now. I mean, the Berlin Wall went down, thank yeah, God. Thank goodness. So the attitude changed. But that had a couple of actors to their discredit. To me, it was like most pitiful uh, protest. Ed Harris, who was a poor man's Robert Duvall, in my opinion. And Nick Nolte, who have another drink, Nick, right? I mean, I don't be rude. They sat on their hands. It was controversial. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I saw. Don't, I don't. Uh, so Kazan is one of the most influential directors, not just for his movie, stage, 
but I I didn't really get into it. The method acting became the school. I, by the way, popular, very popular. I might have mentioned this too. De Niro only appeared one movie, and um, Scorsese presented the award to him. Bob Brando. I have a I watched a documentary. Uh, I didn't use it in my film my film talk, but it's. Kazan talking about the brilliance of Marlon Brando. He really was. He also directed, I did mention, uh, East of Eden, based on Steinbeck's book, James Dean. And that Dean was nominated for Academy Award. <clears throat> it was the only movie that came out during his lifetime of three movies. And that was a great, great acting thing. I should have mentioned that. And I show a clip of that because his mother won the Academy Award and she had a very strong Jovian fleet. I should have mentioned that film of Dean's, of Kazan's films. But he talks about the extraordinary nature of Marlon Brando. But then I read a thing Brando said about Kazan. He said he not only improvised, but I didn't improvise and he didn't improvise more. So they made a team in three movies, Streetcar, well, stage and film Streetcar, Viva Zapata, and then, of course, On the Waterfront. And... Uh, most critics say Brando's acting in On the Waterfront is the finest, I happen to agree, acting in American film history. Two, the scene where the betrayal of the brother comes revealed. The famous, I could have been somebody, I could have been a contender. It wasn't the, it wasn't this, it wasn't this. It was you, you, you told me to fix the fire. You told me to take a dive. He said, I took the I took the short money, meaning you take a dive in a fight and you get the short money up front. But he said, I was on my way to a title shot at the garden. It's every boxer's dream. I could have been someone, I could be a contender. And the brother knows he's betrayed him. So the brother gives him the gun and tells him to hide. Aye, aye, aye. And he says, I'll tell Johnny, the jet I couldn't find. And he goes, 10 to 1, he won't believe me. And the cab driver, Nehemiah, purse off. The music goes like this for Bernstein. And already you know, he's listening. And he was told if he shoots his brother, I, I, I. fine. If he doesn't, bring him to us. And you see him go into a garage, up a ramp. The door's shut, and there's the mob. And they shoot him, and they hang him on a hook. And Brando sees that with Eva Marie Saint. And that's what he decides to talk to the to the Crime Commission, and that's the greatest. I show, I think, seven clips I show. Of the waterfront. Yeah, I, I thought, you know what? It's hard, I've done this film talk for the first time. Some people say it's great, you show clips from a few movies. Others said, gee, I wish you showed more clips from one movie. You can't win. I'm doing this, frankly, because I love the movie. It's a good movie. I show a couple from East of Eden. Um, also, we did another movie I, I cut out face of the crowd. That's a great satire of television. By the way, there was one great satire of a gossip columnist, Sweet Smell of Success, 1957, Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis. Um, supposed to be Walter Witchell. Cruel, vicious gossip columnist. They're always at 21 or sorties. And then by the beautiful 1952, Kurt Douglas was good in this, satire on Hollywood. But Face of the Crowd was a satire on television and 
country star coming Elvis from nowhere who rises from up, gets too big for his britches. He's now the biggest sponsor of like General Mills cereals for kids. He's jilted the gal, Patricia Neal, who got him there. She works, you know, for the ad agency. He's fallen in love with Lee Remick, who he gives an award to. She's half his age. The mic's on, and he's sitting there making fun of the client who wants to run for president, making fun of the serials, uh-uh. making fun of his audience. And the producer can't live And his former girlfriend uh-uh. turns the sound up. Uh-uh. And he has no idea. And he's dropped, and he's now he's like Finito. this. So that's... Uh, so I do a few things. Well, it's so interesting because your memory and the fact that you talk about movies with such understanding of the subject, the contents, the actors, everything. And we, as I said, we were doing the specific era, which encompassed so much war, communist behavior. It was anti-Semitism, which was really something I was not aware of. And I don't think people were about all of this happening in such a short period of time for about 50 well, thank years. Thank you, Mr. You, you clearly know a lot about many things. But I've had a number of people in these talks come up we're very bright, educated, say, gee, I never knew about the blacklist. That, or That's I never knew right. it affected that many guys. Yeah. Or I never knew about the censorship. That's right. I didn't mention the broke up the studios in 48 when they could no longer produce, That's right. exhibit, and then show. They had to get rid of theaters. That created independent studios. So that was a structural change. Very, very and, uh, complex. And so there's a lot more than just the films and directors. But You're it's right. like you know for your own life, or anyone's life, we seem to do well the things we love. And for some reason, I must have misspent youth, but we all went to movies. But I sort of lived at the movies. I don't know why. I, I mean, you know, I, don't wrong say, with that. I had a very happy childhood. I had a lovely sister, brother, nice friends, went to good schools. Um, didn't really grow up with a golden spoon, but I, maybe it was a silver spoon. But uh, It doesn't but matter. I mean, in other words... I always loved going to movies. I loved uh, uh, sneaking off to see movies. Uh, I remember all the movies I ever saw. I remember the movies I saw that fall at Indian Mountain School, little Lakeville Theater. Uh, then we got a huge fight in Canaan, not New Canaan, with the farm boys. Got off with my tie and jacket. And the preppy, the townies are making fun of us. We got a huge fist fight. I uh-huh. jumped in the middle. Headmaster... You can't make this guy up. Bill Doolittle, what a great guy. Naval guy, World War II, Harvard. See, football see, right coach. up your alley. I thought he was going to fire me. He said, good show, young boy. That gives you strength. Meaning you stood up. <clears throat> well, you taught us a lot today. <clears throat> and things that we really don't remember and didn't understand. So for that, and I'm so grateful for your aptitude, your intelligence, and your storytelling is, of course, magnificent. <laughs> and we unfortunately have to stop. But we really accomplished so much. It's so much that people really don't know and didn't know. And we will continue at another time for the rest of our stories. But in the meantime, I want to thank you for your knowledge, your kindness in coming with us, and to continue and pursue your love of delightful words you say and the delight in which you enjoy it. So thank you for coming so much, Billy. I really... I can't thank you enough. And it was a a privilege, really, and just a great joy. I have to tell you, I was a little apprehensive. 
you know I like to talk. But <laughs> I admire. Uh, some people say I talk so much on tennis court, I drive people crazy. I'm sure they can't but concentrate. <laughs> one time I was playing, and a friend, a guy said, is that guy always talking? My partner said, he's quiet today. <laughs> but again, um, I love talking about a su this subject. And I just, sometimes I think I'm living a movie. You know, <laughs> was I in a war or was it a movie? I don't know. But thank you. It was a great honor. I'm so happy to be at this opportunity. Well, thank you for the opportunity to do this. But you're now really comfy, right? I couldn't. You made me very comfortable at this wonderful studio. It's <laughs> uh, great. Everybody. Yes, I couldn't feel more natural. Good. Yeah, All right, darling. Well, this is Dream Machine Studio in West Palm, and we're very happy. And, of course, our parting words are, lead us not into temptation. We can find it ourselves. Have a wonderful day, and God bless you. <laughs>